what I was saying was that I hope that our day of practice uh, has proven in some way to be beneficial, that you've been able to, within the many changes that would have likely occurred, even in just a day of practice, uh, I hope you've been able to have some sense of the benefit of your of your effort. And I, 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 I genuinely, um, I think over time our practice gets easier, though often when we're doing it, it, it feels hard, even if difficult is some boredom or some restlessness. Sometimes it's, it's more difficult than that. Um, memories come up about the past or anxieties about the future and and sometimes it's stuff that we know is pertinent to our life and sometimes it's stuff that could be very old uh, and and it surprises us we you know move away from obligations and responsibilities and distractions and uh, the mind uh, throws up all these un unexpected imagery and then we're we're left to be with that in some way whether we want to or not uh, so I appreciate your effort in um, sitting and walking and doing uh, what you can to understand better how to use insight practice to um, quiet the mind and ultimately to be more free, to experience less uh, a dukkha, less distress, and to know better how to create the conditions for happiness and well-being. The idea behind this weekend's retreat, the joy of daily refuge, is threefold. The first Firstly, that we can take refuge each day of retreat. Last night, today, and tomorrow morning. I think this is uh, the most obvious supported by our meditation, supported by the teachings, and supported by each other, we create and sustain together uh, a place to explore the Dharma and how it fits into our own individual lives. Secondly, what we learn on retreat helps us to understand, or hopefully helps us, to understand more broadly the role of refuge in on the path of Dharma, both as a practice and also as an experience, so that over time it becomes more woven into our daily experience outside of retreat. In this way, it is not restricted to the special conditions of a retreat like this weekend. And thirdly, that we can become more clear 
we can become more clear about finer points of Dharma. And specifically the freedom it points toward as we make connections between refuge and joy and appreciation. Refuge is an ancient system of support, we could say. Traditionally, meditators took refuge in the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Three jewels or gems, as they are termed, reflect the role of the teacher, the role of the teachings themselves, in the community of practitioners that we are part of, whether that be for a weekend, like this weekend, whether it be for our investment or exploration of the Dharma for months or years, or and for some people, uh, for our whole life. Ultimately, we are taking refuge in the Dhamma itself, the truth. The truth is that right now, whatever there is, this breath, this pain in the left knee, this reoccurring thought, that is all there is. Uh, Truth is what compromises, uh, truth is what comprises a human life when we are paying attention and not caught in our habits, preferences, and prejudices. So if we are taking refuge in the Dharma, we are taking refuge in awakening. This is therefore not about institutional allegiance or blind adherence to protocol or tradition. Taking refuge is simple, even if it is not always easy. And when we get a sense of how taking refuge works, what refuge is, it leaves us somehow feeling as if our life uh, also is much simpler than it normally is or than it was at one point. Refuge reminds us that the Dharma is simple. It It is our mind in the life that we have created or that we have inherited that is often complex. It is the nature of samsara, we could say, to be complicated and confusing. But that is not our true nature as a human being, as a person. That is not the Dharma. When we practice We are taking refuge in the clear seeing and wisdom that all conditioned things are subject to change. 
So when we don't cling to anything and we renounce our, our imagined version of how things should look and feel, when we do this, we are free. We leave the world of our ideas and enter the world of things as they are. We take refuge in the way things are. We take refuge in nature, the natural order of things, which is mysterious and impermanent, which is not controlled by us. We are not the center of this. We often experience a kind of central location in the universe, things happening to us. The importance of managing for our affairs as if we are more important. And we have this perceived central location, but we are such a small node in the dynamic and interdependent web of life. So we're learning not to take refuge in the idea of a separate self, but something uh, far more connected, um, far more formidable, uh, far more reliable, far more freeing. Refuge is also a practice. It concerns itself with peace and with contentment. It concerns itself with the external, with, with form. And it concerns itself with the internal, with our mind. We take we take refuge in mindfulness and we renounce craving. We take in this practice refuge in confidence and we renounce doubt. We take refuge in kindness and compassion and renounce selfishness and hostility. We take refuge in generosity and renounce greed. And we renounce, and we take refuge in wisdom and renounce ignorance. So, Refuge is first a place we go to, and second, a place we cultivate within our own heart and mind. The meditation center is a refuge. A quiet room with privacy is a refuge. A meditation cushion in the corner of a room can be a refuge. For many years, 
in a very small apartment. I had a little corner and I had my meditation cushion and a little bell and a, a Dharma book and a journal. And that was in a very real way, a very uh, a distinctly supportive way, um, my refuge, a place I went to practice, to be quiet. Some of you have made a refuge of a room in your home for this weekend. Others have gone to another special location to create a refuge, a place free of as many external distractions as possible. And this does help you, doesn't it? Most of the time. It's a, it's a skillful thing to do. Yet, at the same time, one of the ways you see that it is helping you is that it is showing you that the mind still takes refuge in thinking about the future and the past. And as our practice develops and matures over time, eventually our own mind becomes a refuge. It's not the thing we're trying to understand or overcome or escape our mind becomes a refuge we become as it is phrased in the suttas an island unto ourselves sometimes when people hear this they fear that it is based on a kind of isolation or dismissiveness or exclusion of others it doesn't have anything to do with separating ourselves from others rather it refers to our own capable uh, um, that we are capable of handling our own mind we are capable of handling our own affairs we are capable of handling our own lives and eventually finding greater and greater appreciation in and for our lives. Because our experience of our life is not consumed by resentment and jealousy, greed and hatred, confusion, So if we relegate refuge to the stuff of religious idealism, then we lose touch with its potential to transform the mind in ways that are very practical and probably aligned with our goals, our interests, our intentions, um, the principles that have brought us to the Dharma in the first place. Ultimately, we're taking refuge in the present moment as conveyed in the Majjhima Nikaya and as expressed, I think, in a lot of the meditation instructions so far this weekend. In one passage, it is written, the past should not be followed after, in the future not desired, what is past is gone, the future yet to come.
There's not so much about the past that can be done other than transforming our relationship to it in the present. And the future consists largely of ideas, mainly hopes and fears. The idea is that we would do best to prepare ourselves by the future by focusing in a particular way on the present. So what does this have to do with appreciation and joy? Appreciation and joy have to do with finding happiness and contentment in what we have. And generally, it is also best found in the present moment. If we knew this deeply, let's say, if we had had numerous opportunities for this to be experientially validated, we might very well redefine meaning redefine purpose. We might uh, reshape our days, or at least parts of them. Certainly our habits uh, would begin to shift. With confidence in the Dharma's version of refuge, we probably would spend far less time seeking happiness through external things, such as approval or material assets. We might stop managing so much for our reputation and status and instead focus on what really matters to us. There's a conventional relationship that is easy to succumb to, a conventional relationship to appreciation, which has something to do with the belief that we will feel appreciation or be joyful or have gratitude when our circumstances are different or better. We will enjoy our house when it's cleaner and there's no dishes in the sink or when the roof is repaired. We will enjoy the yard more when the sticks and leaves have been picked up or when our neighbor stops playing loud music. We will appreciate ourselves when we become smarter, less anxious, less stressed, or when we gain 10 pounds or lose 15 pounds, or finally stop stop some habit, eating at night, sleeping too late. And we will appreciate others when they stop doing the things we don't want them to do. When they're nicer to us, when they're less of an inconvenience, 
when they make things more convenient for us. We can even pay attention to how the mind is waiting for the weather to be perfect. Or at least better. Almost every day, the mind wants the weather to be a little different. Almost every day, unless you live in California. That's amazing. We are waiting for nature to do something different for us to be better. This is a definition of insanity. In the Samyutta Nikaya, also attributed to the Buddha, it is said, were there a mountain all made of gold, doubled that would not be enough to satisfy one single person. Know this and live accordingly. The message in the sutta has a universal feeling to it. Uh, found, I think, in many traditions. Uh, it doesn't... It doesn't seem necessarily uh, Buddhist in any, in any distinct sense. What is it saying? It's saying we're confused. It's warning us or reminding us. We are confused. We don't always seek happiness in the most opportunistic ways. We get a little bit of happiness, but often it feels like we fall short. As a result, it is difficult for our mind to settle into appreciation. It's difficult for joy to be a sustained state. Much of the reason for this has to do with learned habits, what we call conditioning. Our conditioning is what underlies how we perceive the world. The mind cannot easily settle into appreciation because it has tasked itself with two functions that, it's, that it, it has deemed really important. One, focusing on unpleasant things in order to figure out a way of getting rid of them. That is one of the main things our mind is doing, almost all of the time. Our mind can only be so bright or, or buoyant if we are caught up in tracking unpleasant things. Focusing on all the things that we are afraid of, all the ways other people are letting us down, or constantly highlighting our own, uh, what we call faults. We could be kind to others instead. We could be kind to our others and to ourselves instead. We could begin to see these different behaviors that lie outside our preferences as representative of areas that are simply less developed in others and in ourselves. We really don't have to focus so much on them. So when our mind is not focusing on unpleasant things in order to figure out a way to get rid of them, 
The mind is trying to figure out how to accumulate things and experiences that are better than the ones that we already currently have access to. We are chasing an idea we have created of happiness. So we can't be fully present to our life. This is the main obstacle. We don't see the details. The mind never settles. The mind never rests. The mind wants, in the case of example A, less of something, or in the case of example B, more of something, or to have something it doesn't already possess. There's a radical and yet very, very, very ordinary teaching at the heart of the Dharma that when we accept that we will get old, when we accept that we will get sick, when we accept eventually also that we will die, we might appreciate that we are alive, simply that we are alive. And all those things we're trying to get rid of and make go away and all the things we're trying to possess will seem so silly to us. We might slow down and focus more on the present, on just being. Being and not becoming. Being and not becoming. Getting rid of or trying to acquire is becoming. When we sit down to meditate, we're trying to drop those two habits of the mind. And when we focus on being, watching phenomena come and go, watching pleasant phenomena come and go, watching the mind and body come and go, the mind settles eventually. And we discover the inherent well-being that is latent and simply waiting for us to put our attention in the right place. I'm going to close this afternoon's reflection with a short sutta passage, and I'm scanning my notes here to see what feels like it fits the best. From the Dhammapada, One is the quest for worldly gain, and quite another is the path to Nibbana, freedom. Clearly understanding this, let not the practitioner be carried away by worldly acclaim, but develop instead detachment. 
and from a different place in the Dhammapada, those who mistake the unessential to be essential and the essential to be unessential, dwelling in wrong thoughts, never arrive at the essential. <laughs>